Okay, how are you guys doing? Awesome, sweet. Um, thank you for coming. Um, anyway, so words are hard, as you saw with Dane earlier tonight. Words are hard, um, especially when you have words that people don't want to hear. Uh, last year, Amelia and I um, were hanging out with uh, one of her coworkers and her wife. Um, yes, her wife, they were a lesbian couple. Um, so it was sort of like a, a double date, and I don't normally do double dates with anybody. Um, but this was, it was fun, like, we went to their place, we had dinner, we walked around the neighborhood, we laughed, we shared some good stories and stuff. Um, and then we started having dinner, and at the end of dinner, the question came up, why didn't you eat meat during dinner? Um, it's like... Why can't I be a vegetarian? Like, uh, at the time. Anyway, so, so I told them that we were fasting. That's why I wasn't having meat. I was fasting from meat for the month. Um, and they were sort of confused, like, exactly your reaction. It's like, why would you not eat meat? Meat is so good. Um, so they were confused. And I said that it's something that Christians do, uh, especially when they're seeking God. Not specifically meat, but fasting. Uh, when they're seeking God for a special purpose. Um, and you see, at the time, we were seeking God about whether or not we should have a baby. Turns out, the Lord said yes. Um, and we're having a baby. Anyway, so that opened up, like, a spiritual conversation uh, about God. So we started talking about religion and our upbringings and church and, and, and their faith and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, okay, like, this is just a matter of time before they ask me, the question that everybody in the room is thinking about. Like, we're just dancing around the subject. And then one of them just drops the bomb on me, and they say, so Chris, you're a Christian, and you're a pastor. What do you think about us? We're married. Are we sinners? Hard question. So um, tonight, we're just going to continue in our series um, in the book of Daniel. It's called, um, my gosh, <laughs> it's called Exile. We've been in the series for a while. And um, it's, it's in the book of Daniel. And basically, we've been seeing how Daniel and his friends, uh, they find themselves living in a land that's not their own. Um, and it's a strange land that speaks a different culture, uh, has different foods, different, uh, different language, all that sort of stuff. But the real big deal was the fact that, like, this culture had no respect for their God, had no respect for their values, their convictions, their morals, all that sort of stuff. And to make things worse, uh, this land that they were in, Babylon, was trying to make them sort of give up their identity, right? Their, their identity in, in being God followers. So they were trying to force them to conform to the ways of Babylon. And the book of Daniel actually helps us to see how, uh, to answer the question, how do we stay faithful to the Lord when we are in a context of exile. Because the fact is, even nowadays, we live in a sort of exile. We live in a land that doesn't have respect necessarily for our God, doesn't really have regard for our values and our convictions, right? So this week, we're going to get to one of the more practical aspects of this series, um, one of the more practical pieces of advice. How do you proclaim truths to culture that don't want to hear those truths. So, for example, how do we proclaim truths about sex and sexuality, or about our money, or um, just the 
the illusion that the American dream is, or most importantly, the fact that people are sinners deserving of God's wrath, because all those are things that people don't necessarily want to hear, right? So how do you bring those things up when people don't actually want to hear them? Uh, And we're going to look to the book of Daniel to answer that tonight. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, um, we just thank you that your word uh, guides us, God, that your word gives us wisdom. Lord, so I pray that as we look at your word tonight, God, that you would speak clearly through it. Lord, that you would open our hearts um, and just change us and mold us uh, into becoming the people that you want us to be. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that your name would be lifted high and that you'd be glorified because of what's said tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the last couple of weeks we've been in Daniel chapter 2. And we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he wants it interpreted. So what he did was he called in all the magicians, all the astrologers, all the diviners, and he says to them, interpret my dream. And they're like, okay, great. Like, we'll do that. Tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And then Nebuchadnezzar is like, nope, not going to tell you. You have to figure out what I dreamt about last night. And they're like, what? Like, that's crazy. No one can do that. Only the gods could do that. And the gods, they don't live among men. That's what they told them. So we can't actually predict your dream. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar really mad. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay then, well, I'm going to go ahead and kill all of, these, all of these people who are supposed to be able to do this. And then Daniel hears that and he's like, oh gosh, like what do we do? I don't want to die. So he does the only thing he can do. He turns to God in prayer. Uh, gathers his friends, and they pray. And then in the middle of the night, as we saw last week with Derek preaching, um, God gave him the interpretation, and then he praised the Lord. So we go ahead and pick up at verse 24. If you have your Bibles, open up to Daniel 2.24. 2.24. And um, once you're there, you know the drill, word. Cool. There's like, I heard three words, and that's like everybody here. So I'll just go ahead and... Go for it. Are they not single? Anyway, okay, whatever. Um, Okay, so verse, starting at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Then the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. To verse 30. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to the things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Okay, so, so notice this. What's, what's the first thing that comes out of Daniel's mouth? Daniel says that no man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner could explain what this dream meant. Right? But there is a God in heaven 
who explains mysteries. The first thing out of his mouth is this wasn't me. I don't have any special powers. This was all God. And this is really good because uh, last week or two weeks ago, we saw uh, Daniel 2.11, which says, which says, what the king asks is too difficult. This is the, the Babylonian speaking. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Right? Daniel basically says, you're right. Like, no one can interpret this. Only the gods. And guess what? The true God, he actually lives among us. Here's proof. Here's your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's proof that God lives among us. And I'm not going to take credit for it. I'm going to point to God as the one who did it. And look, this isn't fake sort of like Oscar's speech. Like, okay, like I want to thank God and my mom and my agent for all that we've done this year. That's not one of those sort of moments. Or like Peyton Manning after the Super Bowl being like, okay, well, what are you going to do after the Super Bowl? Well, I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser's, Omaha, and uh, I'm going to thank the big guy upstairs. Who's the big guy upstairs? Pat Bolin, John Elway, is it God? He doesn't say, right? That, that's not what's going on in this moment. It's not one of those fake, like, I guess I got to thank God because that's just what you do sort of moments. This, this is real, right? He's honestly pointing to God. It doesn't feel fake, right? And that's, I think, one of the problems when it comes to evangelism a lot of times is that it can feel fake, both to the person sharing the gospel and the person being shared to, right? It can feel like it's scripted, right? Like, how many times have you seen somebody go up to someone and be like, hey, if you died tonight, where would you go? Well, probably the hospital, the morgue, I don't know. Um, so there's this, like, script that starts out with that, something like that, and it's like, no, like, like, eternally, like, where would you go? And it's like, if I say no... I'm going to get this long speech, right? So I better say, I do know. Or else I'm going to have to sit through this long presentation, right? And, and that's how it can feel to people. And don't get me wrong, like I have no, nothing against evangelism. I believe that we're called to share the gospel. Um, but that's how many non-Christians feel like when people come with these sorts of just scripts and, the, and these one-liners uh, about what the gospel is. Right? It's like you don't even believe what you're saying or else you'd be speaking from your heart. You'd be speaking from your personal experience. You'd be pumped about what you're sharing right now. And the truth is, people actually, they want to hear the gospel. Like that sounds so like in this post-Christian world, people want to hear the gospel. Like, yeah, they do. Like there's been studies that ha- have been done. There's um, one professor of missions um, named Ed Stetzer, and he did this study uh, and basically, his study showed that an overwhelmingly large amount of millennials would be open to hearing the gospel. Whether they're Christians or whether they're not, whether they're spiritual, whether they're not, people want to hear the gospel. Here's some stats. So among people who are unchurched, 89% are willing to, some, to listen to someone tell them about what they believe about Christianity. 89%. are willing to study the Bible with a friend. 43% are willing to join a small group to learn more about the Bible and Jesus. That's abnormally high. Like, you would never think that. 
right? And that's probably because people aren't actually asking their friends to do this, to hear the gospel, to look at the Bible, to come to a Bible study, whatever. Right? So, so the question is, how do you remove this sort of fake, sort of scripted feel to evangelism that actually makes it compelling to people? Like, how, how does that change? It changes when the gospel, when God's word becomes real to your heart. And this is your first fill-in. Proclamation comes from the heart. Proclamation comes from the heart. See, the core of what we proclaim is here is what Jesus has done for me, and here's what we can, he can do for you. It's a super simple message, right? Here is what God did in my life, and here's what the Lord can do in yours, right? And you can only say that honestly if the Lord really has done something in your life. If he hasn't done anything in your life, you can't say that and actually mean it, right? You're just going to give some sort of scripted answer about what the gospel is, You can't speak it with honesty unless he's really touched you and you've really experienced his grace in your life. And you can point to the fact that the Lord has shown his grace to me. And this isn't in your fill-ins, but I think this is um, super important. And I I thought about putting this as one of the fill-ins. But God will be on your lips if God is in your heart. God will be on your lips if God is in your heart. So a question for you guys. What does spontaneous mean? What does spontaneous mean? It doesn't mean that you're like wild and free and like carefree. It doesn't mean that like you have no plans or that you go wherever the wind blows or that you're always down for adventure and that you don't plan anything. That's not what spontaneous actually means. Spontaneous means that it's something that occurs because of an inner impulse. Right? Spontaneous is synonymous with unrehearsed. It's synonymous with unscripted. It means something that comes from the inside out. And that's exactly what Daniel was doing. Daniel didn't have this script. The, the praise to God, pointing to God, just flowed out of his heart. And that's why it was the first thing out of his mouth. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Luke six forty-five. It's up on the screen. A good man brings out good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Basically, you're going to end up proclaiming and talking about and bragging about whatever is at the forefront of your heart. If God isn't in your heart, if he hasn't captured your affections— Right? then your proclamation of, of who God is and what he's going to do in your life, it's not going to feel real to people. Right? That, that's why Paul in, in Colossians, he says, let the word of God dwell richly in your hearts as you teach and admonish one another. It's because it has to be in your heart if you're going to encourage people with it, if you're going to teach people with it, if you're going to point people to it. It has to be in your heart if you're going to proclaim it. For example, Let's say a friend comes to you, and they tell you that uh, they're really having problems uh, finding their identity in relationships, all right? And you know the gospel, and you know that his identity is actually in Christ. It's not in relationships or, um, or, or whatever it might be, all right? So you can sit there, and you could tell him, hey, here's the gospel. Your identity is in Christ, all right? That can sound 
if you present it in a certain way, it can just sound like, okay, here's the answer, like, go, go and, like, solve it. It feels different when you can say, yeah, like, I totally get what that's like. Like, I totally get what it's like to put my identity in something else. But here's how the Lord has, like, delivered me from that. Here's how the Lord has encouraged me to find my identity in Him. And here's how that has affected and changed my life. That sort of thing has a lot more impact than just saying, like, oh, the gospel says your identity is in Christ, so go on, stop, stop having that problem. Right? Let's keep reading. Verse 31. You looked, O king... And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms, so this is his dream, uh, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and baked, partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a, tre- on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the, rock, oh, st- but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was his dream. You know, I've had some weird dreams. Even this last weekend, I had a really weird dream again. That's like two weekends in a row that I've had dreams, which is very unusual for me. Um, Basically, (coughs) I'll tell you what my dream was. Um, I was very scared. So we were like in this like canyon, and the canyon got like flooded, and we were running through the canyon. Um, That's the second like running from stuff dream um, that I've had in two weeks. So we're running through this canyon, and um, the flood like passes or whatever. It's like the Grand Canyon. And we go down into some caves and inside the caves was the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was a group of these things. It was three baby monkey pugs. You know, the, the Super Bowl like commercial, like baby monkey pugs, but they weren't like, what is it called? No, not baby, puppy monkey baby. Yes. Puppy monkey baby. There were three of those things, but they weren't like the little, little guy that was going to lick your face. These were like seven foot tall baby monkey, whatever, puppy monkey babies. And that is a nightmare to me. Um, anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar's dream is weird. Um, maybe not that weird. Maybe not as weird as Hojin's egg dream or Katie's, uh, peanut butter Scooby-Doo dream. Um, Weird nonetheless. Um, Hey, shout out. Um, So Daniel proceeds uh, to tell him what the dream means, right? And I love just how Daniel starts uh, starts this. He, He basically butters him up. Verse 36. This was a dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and mighty and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Butters him up. And you can kind of see Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, oh yeah, like this is an awesome dream. Like I'm in charge. I like where this is going. I have dominion and power. And everybody bows down to me. Even the animals bow down to me. Like this has to be good. Right? But then the rest of the dream comes. And you have to think that Daniel is kind of like nervous. He's kind of concerned about what he has to say because he's about to have to speak some really uncomfortable truth uh, and he has no clue 
how Nebuchadnezzar is going to react. So basically, Daniel, um, when he interprets a dream, he tells him that after you, a kingdom is going to rise. Right? And this kingdom is going to topple everything that you've created. And after that kingdom, another kingdom will come and destroy that one. And then another one will come and destroy that one. And finally, God is going to set up a kingdom that will never end, that's not made of human hands, and that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will crush all kingdoms. And that kingdom will last. Right? And you can't read this interpretation. You can't read the rest of this chapter without remembering that Nebuchadnezzar is straight up crazy. Because remember, he was ready to kill all of his employees because they didn't know what he dreamt about last night. Right? And now Daniel's going to go to this guy who's ready to kill everyone and say, hey, I got some bad news for you, sort of thing. And remember, Derek reminded us last week that Nebuchadnezzar, he was a megalomaniac. He was crazy. He saw himself as God's favorite, as the apple of God's eye. Um, and basically, uh, later on, we'll see that he even makes people bow down to a statue of him and worship him. Right? So now Daniel comes to him with this really hard word, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is going to fall. Right? K- kingdoms rise and fall, and you are just one of those many kingdoms in the grand scheme of things. Your kingdom is actually not that special. Right, so h- how do you think Daniel feels about having to say that to Nebuchadnezzar? Right, that's not easy. It's not easy at all. But Daniel's a prophet, right? and that's sort of what prophets do. Like, they speak God's word to people. And oftentimes, when they speak God's word to people, the consequences are painful. Right? But they're called to speak God's word no matter what the consequences. You think of Jeremiah and the fact that he was speaking about, hey, if you guys continue on this path, you're going to go into exile. Right? And what happened to him? He got thrown into a pit. Elijah preaches against this wicked queen. And what happens to him? He gets his life threatened and he has to run for it. Isaiah was cut in two by a saw. Like, this is a life of prophets. They proclaim hard things, and they face the consequences. It's just what prophets do, right? But that's like the Old Testament. And we're not prophets. Sort of. Um, Joel 2, and then Acts chapter 2, it actually says this. It says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So what does that mean? It it, it means that if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're called to prophesy. That doesn't necessarily mean predict the future. That doesn't mean all these sorts of connotations. It means that you're called, that the Lord is going to put his words in your mouth and you're going to be called to speak those words to people. Sometimes that'll be words of encouragement. Sometimes that'll be words that are challenging. Either way, it means you're going to be called to speak God's word on his behalf. Everyone who's a Christ follower is called to speak God's word on his behalf. And as epic as it might sound, we are actually prophets living in exile, right? As we find ourselves in exile, in a place and in a time and in a culture that doesn't necessarily want to hear God's word and what God has to say about stuff, we're called to speak it out. And the fact is, just like the Old Testament prophets, 
we're going to face consequences for that. We're going to face flack for it. And that's something that we can't forget. And here's a simple truth, and it's not like revolutionary or anything, but this is your next fill-in. It's that proclamation is hard. Proclamation is hard. That's such a, like, duh, like, sort of truth. Um, And if you say, like, no, it's, like, totally easy. Like, I can call people out on stuff all the time and speak against people's sin. Um, Then you're a liar or you're just super prideful. Um, Because the fact is, proclamation is hard. And Jesus even takes the time to tell his disciples this and to remind them, constantly before uh, he goes back to the Father that they're going to proclaim stuff and it's not going to be easy. Jesus says that people will hate you for the message that you preach. Like, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And why do they hate us? Why do they hate the disciples? Is it because they preach a message of love and peace? Or is it because they preach a message that, hey, when you die, like, you can go to heaven? If that was all that the message was about, if that was all in, entailed, then nobody would care, right? Nobody would, would find that offensive. But the fact is, the gospel actually is offensive. Like, yes, it's, it's good news. Like, you get to be with the Lord, and you get to receive his blessings, and you get his Holy Spirit, and he grows you, and all that sort of stuff. But the gospel is offensive because the gospel confronts us. The gospel says that you are not sovereign over your life. Much like Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, he he said to him, you may be king right now. You may be in control now. But one day God is going to establish his kingdom. And the gospel says to us, you may think you're king of your life right now. But there's only one king and one Lord. And his name is Jesus. And the gospel reminds us that you're not king of your life. That you're not in charge of it that you need to submit to King Jesus, that you need to repent. And if you do repent, if you do turn to him and allow him to be king of your life, if you bow the knee, you'll be saved. That's what the gospel says. And that message, the message that Jesus is Lord and you're not, that's a message that's hard for people to accept because it entails that there's going to be certain things that the Lord demands about sex. There's going to be certain things that the Lord demands about money and our career and our time and all that sort of stuff and our relationships. And people are not going to like that. Why? Because the message says you're not in charge. You don't get to decide about those things. God is the one who decides about those things. But, the, but we're not just proclaiming these sorts of things to, to the Babylonians, right? To, to non-believers, there are times when we need to speak those same truths to our friends. Right? And the truth is, there will be times when you're going to have to say hard things to believers, and you might lose a friendship because of that. You might create tension in that relationship. But we're called to speak God's truth, knowing it's not easy. So is there somebody right now like in your life that you can think of that you need to call out, that you need to speak God's truth into their life? that you need to confront and sin or, or something like that. Or maybe just even encouragement. Like, hey, like here's what the Lord is saying to you uh, about your life right now, and here's what I see the Lord doing in your life, and here's how you should be encouraged. Like that's proclaiming God's word too, not just calling people out on sin. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 45, <clears throat> and it says, This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not made by human hands. 
uh, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. Starting here. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So, up, um, here's what we know. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar isn't necessarily saved. He doesn't become a, a, a believer, a God follower. But here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar saw something about God more clearly. And here's your last fill-in. Proclamation helps others see God more clearly. Proclamation helps others see God more clearly. Now when it comes to seeing God or growing in our relationship with God, whether you're a believer or non-believer, um, it's not, usually not an all or nothing sort of thing. Right? Most often it comes in steps. Like people get um, a, one small truth about God. Then they get another. Then they get another. And, and it sort of builds. Right? It, it builds on each other. People usually don't come to Christ in just like one moment. Like it's an experience of uh, a lifetime of experiences and people talking to you and sharing the gospel with you and investing into you that eventually come to fruition into putting your faith in Christ. It's a series of moments and relationships and events that lead to Jesus. Right? So our proclamation helps people see more God clearly. It tears down barriers and stuff like that. But the fact is, it's not always verbal. Our proclamation isn't always verbal. So going back to the story I started with at the beginning of the night. So we're sitting there, right? Um, Sitting over at the dinner table. And they ask me, they're like, hey, so you're a Christian and you're a pastor. What do you think about us? Are we sinners because we're gay? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I am screwed. Um, There's no way this ends well at all. Like, either I tell them what the Bible says, or I just sugarcoat the heck out of this thing so that they don't get mad at me. It seems like it's just going to be a lose-lose sort of situation. So I'm, like, going through all these scenarios in my head. If I say this, this is what's going to happen. If I say this in this way, these words, like, they might take it this way. And this is all going on in, like, a second. So I just, like, throw up a prayer to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, just give me wisdom uh, and give me, like, literally give me words to speak in this moment. Um, And I begin to tell them. I begin with just, in a sense, like apologizing um, for the way that many Christians have just unproportionately made this like the center and focus of all their attention and how that has often come about in sort of hurtful and hateful ways. But then I told them that as a Christian, that my conviction is that the Bible is God's word. Bible is God's word. And, and there are things in the Bible that are hard to accept. And there are things in the Bible that I wish weren't in there. Like what it says about money or like what it says about sexuality. But that at the end of the day, that I have to know that if God agrees with everything that I believe, then I've probably created a God in my own image. So even if I don't like what it says, like I have to let God be God. And just because I believe that the Bible says um, 
that this is not something God has called us to, that he's actually saying that this isn't what he intended for us, that doesn't mean that I can't love you or I can't care for you or I can't be friends with you. That doesn't make you less of a person than me. That doesn't make you less capable of the Lord loving you. And you know what happened at the end of all that? They accepted that word. They didn't agree with it, right? But, but they accepted my convictions, that that's what I believed, right? And why did they do that? Why could they disagree with what I said but still accept what I was saying? It's because they knew that Amelia and I cared about them, right? Because we never treated them differently because of their orientation, because we uh, freely opened up to them about what the Lord was doing in our own lives. It was because they knew that God was real to us, right? That we didn't pick and choose like, okay, like the Bible says um, this about sexuality and we're just very hard against this, but the Bible says this about other things and like we don't actually follow that. Like, they knew that, like, we try to follow the Lord in everything that he calls us to, right? Even when it's hard to do those things. But I think most importantly, the fact that we were sitting there having dinner with them in their home communicated something. It it communicated that this friendship, that it was real, right? That we actually cared for them, right? When I said, the Bible says this and that and this and that about sexuality and homosexuality, but that I'm still called to love you, they can, they, they heard that word, and they knew that was real because we actually did care for them. Our actions, our, our, our actions, our words were backed up by actions, right? And that's why actions are just so important to proclaiming the gospel. Um, there's a professor of of mission, he's dead now, um, named Leslie Newbegin. He's a guy named Leslie. Um, and, And he says this about living in the context of exile and proclamation. He says that the gospel, the church is a hermeneutic of the gospel. Church is a hermeneutic of the gospel. That's uh, basically a, a way of saying that people interpret our proclamation through the way that the church lives. If I say, hate the sin and love the sinner, people are going to think that that's just some cliche BS unless they actually feel that I love them. Right? They, they, you can't say those words unless they know that you actually love them. And that applies to all sorts of things. Right? It's the same in, in church. Like If you're going to call someone out in church, they have to know that you care about them. Like If some random person comes up to me in church and they're like, hey, like... Um, X, Y, and Z, and you need to fix this and do that, and this is what's wrong, and this is what I see in your life that you need to fix and turn to the Lord, and it's some random person I don't know. I'm going to be like, who the heck, like, are you to be calling me out? Like, what gives you, like, the idea that you have that right and that authority? It's like, you don't know me. But if someone that I know and that I trust and that I know they love me and have my best interests in mind comes up to me and says those same things— my heart will just be open to hearing that. Maybe I'll still be resistant, but at the very least, I'll hear them out and weigh like what they're saying to me. So our proclamation, whether it's to the world, whether it's to, to people in our life groups or our friends, it has to be backed up by words. I mean, it has to be backed up by actions. Right? Because our proclamation helps others see God more clearly. So at the end of the day, the reason that we proclaim 
is because we've experienced God, because we know that he's good. That's why we do life groups. We do that so we can proclaim God's truth to one another. That's why we do worship, right? When we do worship, we're not just proclaiming truths like out loud and we just happen to be like in a room together while we happen to be doing this. Like when we do worship, we're proclaiming to God what's on our hearts, right? And as Derek said last week, worship takes what's in our minds and our heads down to our hearts and it makes it real. And that's, that's the same reason we preach at SOMA, whether it's Brandon or me or Andy or just any one of the other student ministries pastors who come in. Um, we do it because we want you guys to see God more clearly. And that's what proclaiming God's word does. It helps us to see him more clearly. That's why I've done this like week after week for f- almost four years now, since 2011. Like God has put it on my heart that I need to be proclaiming his truth, right? To make sure or to help you see God more clearly and help you live out the life that the Lord has called you to live. Because I want you guys to see just how good the Lord is and how beautiful the gospel is and how great his grace is. That's, that's ultimately why we proclaim, because we've experienced him. We know what he's done in our lives, and we want others to taste exactly the same thing. So tonight, we're just going to take some time, uh, and we're going to go ahead um, and just sing a couple songs. Um, We're going to proclaim God's goodness through worship. Um, We're going to proclaim that he's worth it. And worship is just, um, as you know, a verbal act of proclamation. And it's not just something that we do, like, together in a room. Um, We happen to be together. Like, this is something that when our hearts— are are united in a common purpose, in a common goal to make God's name famous, to give him glory. There's something that happens. The Lord just like comes and he takes control of that and and he he just lifts himself up through our words. So tonight we're going to sing a song. um, I believe it's it's a new song. And um, basically it, it, it it's, it's a song that's asking the Lord to just give us his spirit and to empower our proclamation so that his name will be lifted up. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll go ahead and sing. Father, we know um, that you're good. Lord, we know that you're holy. Lord, and we know that you're deserving of praise and worship. Lord, so we just uh, take this time to proclaim together your name Lord, to proclaim your goodness and what you've done in our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come upon this place. Lord, that your spirit would come upon us and just empower us to declare your goodness and your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.